Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. There are shouts of joy and victory in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand performs valiantly. The Lord's right hand is raised. The Lord's right hand performs valiantly. I will not die, but I will live and proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord disciplined me severely, but did not give me over to death. Pray with me, please. Father, this Memorial Day weekend, we remember those who have valiantly defended our great American freedoms. God, we also remember and praise you for the salvation that you freely offer to us. As the psalmist writes, may this victory over death lead us to shouts of joy. And though it can be difficult to receive, we nevertheless thank you for the discipline you bring into each of our lives. Through your discipline, help us to grow and live in your grace and proclaim hope to this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Michael. Well, happy Memorial Day weekend. Great to see so many of you here in the first service. We're going to be in Judges chapter 7. You have your Bible. You can open there. In the historic battle of Thermopylae in 480 B.C., Spartan warriors led by King Leonidas fought fearlessly against the innumerable hordes of Persia sent by Xerxes I. Positioned between the impassable mountains on the left and the Gulf of Malia on the right, the Spartans created a bottleneck where they repelled waves and waves of Persian troops using their now famous phalanx, which is an impenetrable wall of bronze shields interlocked together. For several days, the Spartans held their ground, displaying remarkable courage and skill. However, a Spartan trader led the Persians a back route up the hills, and the Spartans were flanked. And King Leonidas realized that their defeat was imminent. And so he ordered most of his men, numbering about 70,000 at the start, to retreat and rally with the rest of the Greeks so they could fight another day. But he sacrificed himself and a small contingent of his absolute best soldiers, 300. And they delayed the Persians' march into Athens. The Battle of Thermopylae and the legend of the 300 served as a rallying cry for years to come for the Greeks' resistance and remains to this day an enduring tale of sacrifice and heroism. Well, today we're looking at the Jewish 300, the battle against the hordes of Midian and Amalek and the Arameans. And it is led by a man named Gideon, son of Joash, who also has been named Jeroboam. And the story is so memorable because it involves victory despite impossible odds, subterfuge as they created the illusion of a far larger army than they had, and then divinely inspired confusion as the Midianites, Amalekites, and the Arameans literally turned on each other and killed each other in the fog of war. And so the relentless pursuit of the surviving Canaanite combatants by the rest of the tribes of Israel, it is just a renowned story. 
But unlike the Spartans, this 300 ends in the victory of God's people. Unlike the Greeks, the Jewish tribes worship the one true God of creation. Unlike the Greeks, they also had no military life or no military power and no military skill or training to fall back on. And so in this story, we're going to find that God is the hero of the story. So my main thought today is that Gideon's story really is a picture of the triumph of saving faith. We're going to see in the story that it's a picture of the triumph of saving faith. How do we see this triumph in the story? I'm just going to take some time actually this morning and read the story to you. I'll just make a few comments as we go, but I want you to see it as it appears here. I won't paraphrase very much of it at all. Today, starts in chapter 7, verse 1, Jerubal, that is Gideon, and all the troops who were with him got up early and camped beside the spring of Herod. Now that is a spring, and it means the spring of trembling or the spring of, of weeping. I don't know why they called it that. The camp of Midian was north of them, below the hill of Moreh, in the valley, that is the Jezreel Valley. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many troops for me to hand over the Midianites to them, or else Israel might elevate themselves over me and say, my own strength saved me. Now announce to the troops, whoever is fearful and trembling may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. And they didn't have to think twice. <laughs> 22,000 of the troops turned back and only 10,000 remain. Can you imagine how disheartening that would be? And then the Lord said to Gideon, well, you still have too many troops. <laughs> Take them down to the water now, and I will test them for you there. And so if I say to this one, if I say to you, this one can go, he can go. But if I say to about anyone, this one cannot go with you, he cannot go. So he brought the troops down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, separate everyone who laps water with, the to with their tongue like a dog, and do the same with everyone who kneels to drink. And so the number of those who lapped with their hands to their mouths, that is, they cupped the water to their mouths, was 300. And all the rest of the troops knelt to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and hand the Midianites over to you. But everyone else is to go home. And so Gideon sent all the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 troops who took the provisions and their trumpets. The camp of Midian was below him in the valley. And so here we see very clearly what God is trying to do. Now, remember who Gideon is. Remember what his name means. Gideon, it means the thresher. And what is God doing? He's threshing. He's winnowing the troops all the way down to the minimalist, the smallest number you could fight a battle in this particular situation with. And so God has eliminated the fearful so we know that everyone who remains here who goes down to the water, we know that they're not fearful. We know that they at least have courage to fight. And then God eliminates the dog lappers. I don't know what else to call them. Now, scholars speculate as to, you know, is it just that because they were down on all fours and they were lapping like thirsty dogs that they had exposed their necks and maybe the other guys were kind of alert and like scooping water as they were watching around. Listen, we don't know that. The text doesn't say I highly suspect it has nothing to do with any of that. I highly suspect that it's just that God in his foreknowledge knew that only 300 men would, would cup up the water with their hands, and he just wanted 300. He just wanted a small number. And so as we move on here, 
in verse 9, it says, that night the Lord said to him, get up and attack the camp for I have handed it over to you. But if you are afraid to attack the camp, <laughs> go down with Pura, your servant, and listen to what they say. And then you will be encouraged to attack at the camp. So God is trying to encourage him. So he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the troops who were in the camp. Now the Midianites, Amalekites, and all the Kedamites, or the Arameans, had settled down in the valley like a swarm of locusts, okay? And their camels were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And when Gideon arrived, there was a man telling his friend about a dream he had. Listen to this. This is wild. He said, listen, I had this, this crazy dream. A loaf of barley bread came tumbling down into the Midianite camp struck a tent, and it fell. The loaf turned the tent upside down so that it collapsed, and his friend answered, well, obviously, this is nothing less than the sword of Gideon's son of Joash, the Israelite. God has handed the entire Midianite camp over to him. Yeah, that's, that's the obvious correlation you would make from that dream. <laughs> now, it may have been more obvious to him than it is to you and I, because among Gideon and his tribes who are poor, they're impoverished. We learned in the last chapter they're impoverished. Barley bread is the staple of a poor diet in this Canaanite region. And so it would have been much more accessible and easy to, easier to produce than bread made of wheat flour. Uh, and so this idea is that Gideon represents this loaf of barley bread. Now, when it says that it came tumbling, that's the same word that it uses in the garden scene after God has exiled Adam and Eve and he's stationed an angel by the tree of life and it says that the angel's sword was tumbling over. In other words, pointing in all directions to tell people, essentially to signal, you can't come this way anymore. You can't have this anymore. And so the idea here is you have this sort of whirling lightsaber ninja barley oaf like loaf just flipping down the hill in all directions, tearing up tents and destroying this powerful Midianite tent and just upending it. And so this is clearly an omen for them. This, would be a, this dream would be an omen. It would be a sign of their demise. Now notice Gideon's response to this. It says, when Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed and worshiped. He returned to Israel's camp and said, uh, get up, for the Lord has handed the Midianite camp over to you. And then he divided the 300 men into three companies and gave each of the men uh, a trumpet in one hand and an empty pitcher with a torch inside of the pitcher in the other hand. Watch me, he said, and do what I do. And when I come to the outpost of the camp, do as I do, follow my lead. When I and everyone with me blow our trumpets, you are also to blow your trumpets, your horns, all around the camp. And then you will say, for the Lord and for Gideon. And Gideon and the hundred men who were with him went to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch after the sentries had been stationed. And they blew their trumpets and broke their pitchers that were in their hands. The three companies blew their trumpets and shattered their pitchers. They held their torches in their hands, their trumpets in their right hands, and shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. This exact inscription appears in multiple cultures, and it's a battle cry. They inscribe it or they shout it or they cry out with this as a battle cry against their enemies. And so they cry out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, and each Israelite took his position around the camp, and the entire Midianite army began to run. 
and they cried out as they fled. And when Gideon's men blew their 300 trumpets, the Lord caused the men in the whole army, the Midianite army, to turn on each other with their swords, and they fled to Acacia House in the direction of Zererah, as far as the border of Abel, Moholah, and Tabat. And then the men of Israel were called from Naphtali, Asher, Manasseh, and they pursued the Midianites. What do we learn here? We learn that the very troops that were sent back to their homes are now enjoined to get in the fight, get back in the fight. So God initially brought this victory, but there are enough enemy combatants left that the rest of the tribes can now come and chase them. But no doubt, no one can doubt that God has given them the victory. And so we see here, I think, a vivid portrayal of God's saving grace, don't we? And the triumph of sure faith. I want to point that out to you today. Number one, I think we see that saving faith abandons trust in anything other than Christ. Saving faith abandons trust in everything other than Christ. In the text in verses two and four, when it says, you, you have too many troops, and again, God says, you, you just have too much. You have, you have too much that you're trusting in. And Gideon's faith was tested by an otherwise absurd command. Thin out almost all of your troops. <clears throat> and once you windle, whittle them down to almost nothing, then I will show you the victory of the Lord. And God took away from them, at least initially, everything that they trusted in or everything that they could possibly trust in. And as we've seen in other victories, Deborah and Barak, God doesn't always do this. He, for Deborah and Barak, he brought tens of thousands of soldiers from the, from the tribes. But here, God has to make a statement. He has to remind them, you can't trust in anything other than me. You can't give the credit to anyone other than me. And I think this is a beautiful picture, and it aptly illustrates our salvation post-Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Consider Paul. Now, Paul trusted in a lot of things, and he tells us in several places, in Corinthians and Philippians, he tells us what he trusted in. He tells the Corinthians, and he tells the Philippians, listen, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, okay? As, as Jewish as it gets, and I was born on the, on, in, in the right country, and I was circumcised on the eighth day, and I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, which was a highly praised tribe, uh, uh, esteemed tribe at the time. And Paul says in every way, listen, I had, a fine, I had the finest Jewish education in the Jerusalem Academy. I was raised under Gamaliel, who was the most famous teacher in Judaism, other than Moses. He's like, I was his apprentice, and I was an up-and-coming Pharisee, and I had all of this going for me. And this is what he says, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, I consider all of that trash. Comparatively, my entire pedigree, everything that I had accomplished, everything that I have achieved in life, everything that I was trusting in, my heritage, my lineage, my faith, my Torah learning, all of it. It's like trash, dust in the wind, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And every person here faces an existential threat to your existence. But when you die, you won't come back. You'll just be dead forever. And we will go to one of two places. Your soul will either go into heaven's glories or you will go to hell. 
And as blissful and wonderful and glorious as heaven is in the presence of the Lord, where Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, that is how terrifying the horrors of hell will be. Hell is a place, the Bible makes it very clear. Hell is not just soul sleep, it's not just your death. Hell is a place of eternal, conscious, unending torment. That's what it is. For choices made or not made in this life, particularly as they relate to Christ. And so those are our choices today. So what are you trusting in? What do you trust in? You may be trusting in your religious heritage like Paul. The fact that you were raised in a good Christian home or maybe you were raised in a very devout religious home. And when the Pharisees showed up to John the Baptist and they were questioning why he was baptizing people in the Jordan River, John the Baptist said, look, don't think you're all that because you're wearing stuff, because you went to the school. If God wanted sons of Abraham, he could raise them up from these rocks right here. When the Pharisees accosted Jesus for coming into town on a little donkey, right? He's riding on a little mule. And the people are just praising him. The son of David has come. Our king has come. And the Pharisees go sideways. Why are you allowing people to praise you like this? He's like, look, if they don't praise me, then the rocks themselves will cry out. Listen, your trust in your religious heritage your life of devotion growing up in a Christian or a religious home isn't going to get you anywhere with God. Isn't going to get you anywhere with God. If you trust in that, you'll be lost forever. Perhaps you're trusting in good works, maybe religious good works, or maybe general moral goodness. For religious people, they trust in the fact that they've done these things. Maybe they've been baptized when they were children or confirmed later, or maybe bar mitzvahed or some other rite of passage where, passage where you've gone through that rite of passage and, and now you think you're good, you're all good with God. Or maybe you perform some sacraments and you think, yeah, I got all the right sacraments. I checked all the boxes. Nope. If you trust in that, my friend, you'll be lost forever because none of that can save you. If you're a secular person and you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, welcome to church. I'm glad you're here. I'm sorry, I seem a little worked up. But, but listen, if you're trusting in the idea that because you're generally just a morally good person, well, I'm not as bad as, remember the Jared guy from Subway? I just watched that documentary. Remember that guy who was a pedophile? He turned out to be a pedophile, and he's like giving speeches in front of children about Subway, the magic of Subway. And, you're, and, I'm, think, and I'm literally watching the documentary thinking, I'm not that bad. I mean, who's that bad? Well, the Bible says you are. You may not have committed the same sins, but all have fallen short of the glory of God. And all must be justified freely by his grace through faith. And so if you are trusting in your general moral goodness, listen, I'm here to tell you it's not going to cut it. You will be lost forever. You may be here today and you're trusting in the material world. You're convinced that science will discover some way of preserving the conscious mind after the body's death. I can't tell you how much of this I'm coming across. Are you seeing this? Like in scientific literature, people are like, man, someday we're going to be able to just transfer our consciousness to, to AI. And there will be an AI version of me. There will be a chat GPT version of me <laughs> who could just preach my sermons for me, right? 
Or maybe you're hoping in a spectacular medical breakthrough that will enable you to just print out a new heart. You're like, oh, my heart's going bad. I think I just print, <laughs> you know, your new heart. They put it in. Listen, no matter what the technical, technological breakthroughs or advances, you cannot ultimately trust in any of it. It doesn't matter how much exercise or technology or salad and kale and broccoli you throw at the problem. You and I still have the same problem. We're going to die. 100% of us, we're going to expire. If it doesn't get you today, it's going to get you someday. And when you die, let me ask you, what are you trusting in? What is your hope in? Because if your hope is in anything in this life, your religion, your devotion, your upbringing, your morality, you're lost forever. And you're never coming back. <clears throat> and Jesus may be saying to you sitting here today, listen, you just have too many troops. <laughs> you just have too much that you're trusting in. You just think all of this is going to get you by, and I'm here to tell you, Saving faith, a faith that triumphs for eternity, humbly relinquishes trust in anything to save us that is not the grace and the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Number two, saving faith is always tested by and encouraged in adverse circumstances. Verses three and seven says, so 22,000 of the troops turned back but 10,000 remained, and then God says, go down to the water, I'm going to test you, right? I'm going to test you, I'm going to test the troops. I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped uh, and, uh, with the hand and hand the Midianites over to you, but everyone else is to go home. So in that moment when God begins to rid our lives of all of those things we trusted in, and they just, he just begins to strip them away. All that stuff we trusted in, it can be a little jarring. It could, it could be a little panic-inducing. It feels a little bit like getting tased, right? Like you just, you're, you're like, whoa, I trusted in that thing. I relied on that thing. And here in Gideon's story, after a pretty shaky start in chapter six, we see he comes into the story. It's such a great story. He comes into the story and he's starting to act like the man of courage and the man of valor that God envisioned him to be. Like the, the angel of the Lord told him, you're going to be a mighty man of valor, courageous man of God, mighty in the Lord's power. And in chapter seven, he comes into chapter seven, he's starting to act like it. He's bossing the troops around. He's telling everybody what to do. He seems like he's a little more confident. The angel of the Lord has spoken to him. And now he seems like he needs more confirmation in chapter seven more confirmation, especially as God begins to thin out the troops. Folks, you can rest assured that if your faith is genuine, if your faith is the real deal, then it will be tested by God. Now, if you've grown up with an easy believism, what is easy believism? It's a faith that is molded and shaped by culture, the culture and the trends of the culture. It's fashioned by whatever the flavor of the month is in the world. If that's been your faith journey and you just kind of have this syrupy, sweet, easy believism, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, it's all good. Jesus is just all right with me, you say, with the Doobie Brothers. <laughs> then I'm here to tell you that that faith is not going to sustain you when the storms of life come. It can't. Jesus said, listen, the rain falls on the righteous, it falls on the unrighteous. 
falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, the same storms come to all of our life. But the question is, what have you built your house on? What have you built your life on? Jesus said, the person who builds his life on my teaching, when the storms come, they will stand. His house will stand. His life will stand. But if you built your life on the marshy, boggy, soft ground of the world system, when that stuff comes against you, nothing will sustain you. You will fall with a great crash. But if your faith has been authentically in Christ and you have responded to his command to repent of your unbelief, to trust in him alone for salvation, to devote yourself as a disciple to his word, its doctrines and its values, to live according to Jesus' teachings, then when the rains and the storms come against you, your faith, more genuine, uh, more precious than gold, will be proven authentic and purified in the fires of life's trials. Look at how Peter put this in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. What a big statement. There's a lot packed in there. He says, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Now the believer is born again into a new and living hope and what's the inheritance? It's not heaven. Your inheritance is not heaven. He's, that's not what he's talking about here. Your inheritance is in heaven. And when you go there, you'll see it. And it's for the Jew in the first century, the inheritance of the Jewish nation was a brand new resurrected body that was imperishable and incorruptible, that lived forever and eternity. That was what was waiting for you in heaven. And so as a good Jew, he's telling you, we've been born again by the Holy Spirit into this new and living hope and we look forward to a day when God will deliver to us that which he promised, which is our salvation, this resurrected glory that we're going to participate in. And he says, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in, its last, in the last time. And what is he saying? He's saying, furthermore, this inheritance which is resurrected body life it's warehoused. It's being stored for you. And God is safeguarding you now in these storms, in the midst of everything that you face, all the trials that come against your life. God is safeguarding you by faith in him. And in all of this, you greatly rejoice. Though for a little while, you've had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. And these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible, glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What did he say? He says you're receiving it and you're going to receive it. You're receiving it, and you're going to receive it. This is like winning the lottery, like the billion-dollar lottery, and them telling you, now, you have a choice. You, you can receive this in 30 annuity payments, one payment over every year for the next 30 years of your life, or in one lump sum, which... Which do you want? And you go, I don't know. It's a hard decision to make. Can I have both? And they say, yes. 
You can get all 30 payments, and then at the end, we'll give you the same amount again in one lump sum. This is what that's like. You and I have received eternal life now. We have received resurrection power and life now. And it unfolds in the life of the Christian. And then at the end, what do we see? What do we receive? Resurrection bodies. It's like winning the lottery twice. And Paul says, you you are receiving it and you're going to receive it. You're getting it now and you're going to get it when you get there. And so this is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life, this resurrection lottery (laughs) that we have won in Jesus. We receive the earnest down now, the presence of the Holy Spirit, his comfort, his peace, his companionship, his conviction, his assurance, his power and joy. And then resurrection life paid out over the course of our lives results in inheriting the whole world and new resurrection bodies. Listen, Satan can only use two tactics against you. You might want to write these down. These are the only two. He can tempt you with two things. John Piper put it this way. The devil only has two weapons. Two weapons. Pain and pleasure. And he will, he will either hurt you so bad that you hate God Or he will give you so much pleasure that you don't even think about God. You don't need God. And the solution to both is always the same. God is more precious than what I lose, and God is more precious than what I gain. And the key to being shielded from the temptations of too much evil or too much excess is a growing, thriving, confident faith that is buffeted by by trials and burnished in the fire. And shown to be true. And so there are essentially four or five things that he mentions here. I want to point them out to you. We observe several truths about faith in this passage. First first of all, he addresses the virtue of faith. Why is faith a virtue? Why is faith a virtue? What is the usefulness or the benefit of it, right? Well, it reminds us that our trials are temporary. Our faith reminds us that our trials are, Paul said this, are light and momentary trials, And he said that in a chapter in which he enumerated the most difficult trials a Christian could ever go through to the point where he despaired life itself. And he said, and these are just light and momentary. Wow. What about the validity of our faith? Verse 7, A, how is faith shown to be legitimate? It is proven, genuine by the trials and suffering that we go through. Those things actually show it reveal it to be true faith, the faith that God has planted in our hearts. What about the value of our faith? He mentions the value of our faith. What could be more treasured than a tested, proven faith? Nothing the world has to offer could be of commensurate worth or value. Nothing the world has to offer could be of commensurate worth or value to us than a tested, tried, proven, genuine faith. He tells us about the victory of our faith in verse 7c. Peter uses three words here that he rips right out of military life, military processional life, praise, glory, and honor. Now, typically in the New Testament, we think of praise, glory, and honor, so this idea is Jesus returns to the praise, glory, and honor. Whose praise, glory, and honor? Obviously his. (laughs) Like we praise him, we glorify him, we honor him, as God alone, right? So obviously that honor, that praise, that glory is due him alone. We just sang about that in a couple of our songs. 
But the New Testament also teaches that God shares that, at least in a limited way, with the believer. We experience the glory, the praise, and the honor that God shares with us in the same way that he shares his resurrection life with us, his, his life with us. And so, for example, in John chapter 12, Jesus tells the Pharisees, you know what your problem is? You seek the honor of men or you seek the praise of men, but you don't seek the praise of God. You don't seek the praise that comes from God. He says in Romans chapter eight, he tells us this. He says, everyone that God has called and elected and predestined, okay, so the elect, the called, the predestined, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. Do you understand? You're going to be raised in glorifying resurrection power. And then when it comes to praise, honor, and the other one is glory. Glory. So those he justified, he glorified, and those, what about honor? That's the one we forgot. Romans chapter two, verse seven, he says, this is what a Christian does. A Christian pursues glory, honor, and immortality. That's what Christians do. They pursue glory, honor, and immortality. That's what we're striving for. That's what we're reaching for. That's what we're moving towards. So he tells about the victory of our faith. These are victorious terms. You're victorious in Christ. This is what you can expect when Christ returns. He tells us about the vision of our faith, 1 Peter 1.8. So while enduring impossible trials in this life, what should be the focus of our lives? And so the idea here is that we fill up the field of our vision with Jesus, and it's not that we don't see anything else anymore. It's not that we don't see trials anymore. We don't see the stuff anymore. It's just that we see it all through the lenses of Jesus. We see it all through the filter of what Christ has promised for us. And so he tells us that this should be the focus, the fixation, the vision of our faith. And then he tells us about the vindication of our faith in verse 9. How will my faith in Jesus be finally shown to have been true? We receive the reward of our hope, which is what? Our final salvation. Listen, you're as saved today as you're ever going to be, at least in one sense. You are secured with the Lord. He saved you, he bought you with a price, the price of his son's death on a cross, you belong to him, you have that security. When you die, you will be with him, but there is a final salvation, saving from the presence of this evil and sinful world that we will undergo, and these fallen, broken bodies. And that's our final salvation. So back to Gideon. Gideon's story is a picture of how God saves us by faith. And he tests us and refines that faith through trials. But it's also a picture of how God encourages genuine faith, genuine saving faith in the midst of our suffering. Now, remember that incident with the barley, the ninja barley whirling bread, right? Remember that, okay? Now, God says this, I want to encourage you. That's what he says in the text. He says, now, if you're still afraid, I want to do something that's going to encourage your faith. Go down there and eavesdrop on the conversations that are just kind of roiling in among the troops. And listen, and he hears this vision, this sign, this vision of his victory, right? And what is the angel of the Lord doing? The Lord is encouraging his faith in the midst of his struggles. And we often need that as well. It's not just that God is, is, is just intending or intent on just sort of putting you through the ringer, putting you through the gauntlet to try the, the genuineness of your faith. No, it's that in the midst of that, God brings encouragement. What Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 3, 2 through 3. 
And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you concerning the faith so that none of you will be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed for this. So sure, we're appointed for trials. We're appointed to go through stuff. God is burnishing our character. He's hammering it. He's folding it like steel. He's making it strong. But at the same time, Paul says, we, we, we wanted to encourage you. That's why we sent Timothy. And so let me ask you, do you have people in your life today who could encourage you in the midst of it? Listen, if you don't have community, the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. It falls on the church goer and the church member. The same stuff comes to all of our doorstep, the same kinds of things. Loss, suffering, ailments, physical stuff, a body breaks down, we lose loved ones, and on it goes. But the question is, who are you going through it with? Who can come around you and encourage your faith as you're going through it? Because if you don't have that, you can have that here. You can have that right here at Christ Community Church. You don't have to sit on the perimeter and go home and suffer in silence. You can suffer in community (laughs) and be encouraged. And there is something tremendously cathartic about knowing that other people are going through the same kinds of things that you are. And they're handling it in stride and in faith and standing on the word and they're struggling and they're falling down just like you are. There's just something so powerful about that in the Christian life. And God gives that to Gideon. God gives him a confirming, encouraging sign in the midst of this granule, this little grain of fear that he still has hidden in his heart. To recap, saving faith abandons any trust in anything. God strips it all away, all the troops, all the stuff, everything we might trust in. And saving faith is always tested by, but it's encouraged in the midst of adverse circumstances. Would you be encouraged today? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for this encouraging word, this uh, really inspiring story. And we're so glad that it shows us the character of our God. It shows us your character. It shows us what kind of God you are. And in the midst of the stuff that we face, the stuff that comes against us, the stuff that knocks us down, frankly, that you are for us and you are with us. And God, it shows us that we cannot rely on anything other than your saving grace. And if you're here this morning and you have done that and you've relied on anything, it doesn't matter whether it's your works, your religious devotion, your Christian background or devout upbringing in religion, it doesn't matter what it is. Will you let go of it right now? Let it go. Send those troops home. And trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. Trusting what Christ has done for you on the cross. Lord, we trust in what Christ has paid on the cross for us, and we trust in nothing else. And if you're here this morning and you're suffering, don't do it alone. Come into community. At the end of this service, we'll have people up front who would love to pray for you. Would you come up, let one of us elders or one of our prayer team members pray for you and help you through it and let one of us pastors help you find community? And Father, we thank you for all of these things. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.